0: Good morning, everybody. So we're going to do the Bible reading now. Um, so we're going to do Galatians one verse eleven, and we—it's on page one thousand one hundred sixty-seven on the church Bibles. If you wanted to follow along, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's room and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. And stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles. Only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles, James, Cephas, and John, who's esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along.
1: Good morning, everyone. Well, if you'd like to keep Galatians chapter 1... Uh, Verse 11, open in your Bibles and there's an outline in the booklet and the outline will appear as I go along. Now last week Luke Luke opened up the first 10 verses of this letter to the Galatians um, which uh, opened up with Paul's utter astonishment at, at what had happened in the Galatian church. The Galatians were on the verge of giving up the gospel that Paul had preached to them, the gospel of the wonderful free grace of Christ accomplished through um, his death for our sins which Paul mentions in verse 4 and his resurrection from the, ver- from the dead which he mentions in verse 1. How did this happen? Well, a group of Jews came from Jerusalem uh, into their midst and were making accusations against Paul. They'd come, uh, purportedly anyway, from the leader of the Jerusalem church, from James and they were making strong accusations against Paul and the gospel he preached. Paul's integrity, therefore, and his message were under attack, which should have come up, but has not. Aha, good. Um, These uh, Judaizers, what they did was claim that Paul wasn't really a true apostle. And hence, if he wasn't a true apostle, his message was pretty suspect. Um, it needed correction, adjustment. He had some of it right, but it needed some adjustment, and particularly um, Jewish adjustment, the adoption of circumcision uh, for the Gentiles and other matters of the Jewish law. Now what we see in this passage today um, is Paul's defence of his apostleship and hence also the authenticity of the good news about Jesus that he preached to the Galatians. Now I've summarised um, Paul's defence of his apostleship under the three headings that are in your outline. And the first I've called uh, the origin and authority of Paul's gospel. Let me read verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's commission as an apostle, you see, was sort of out of the ordinary, to say the least. I mean, he was not one of the twelve who'd been with Jesus all through his life, been with him, seen what he did, um, learnt uh, from him, etc. In fact, He began life and most of his life as an enemy of the church. He says so in this passage, that he was a persecutor of the church, tried to destroy it. His appointment as an apostle was what I call one of God's left field events. You know how if you read through the scriptures you see God often comes out of left field. He does something totally unexpected at the most important of times. Take for instance um, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth is actually a Moabitess and the Moabites were enemies of Israel. And I won't go into a long story but by a set of strange coincidences, if I can call them that, she ends up marrying Boaz and they become grandparents of the great King David. Or you might take David himself. Um, He was the least likely Jesse's sons to be king of Israel but God chose him and later he defeated of course the Philistine giant Goliath you see the context that Paul was in was ripe for the question of the validity of his apostleship to be raised and this is exactly what the Judaizers did they essentially said, Paul supposed apostleship was really second hand. It wasn't from Jesus himself, but the other apostles in Jerusalem. He'd got it from guys in Jerusalem, but in the process he got the message wrong, sort of a little bit anyway. So Paul meets this accusation head on. His gospel uh, was derived from no human. Origin of any kind. Bring that up will you. Go ahead. Thank you. He did not get it from any man. He did not have to be taught it. He didn't have to take a class, you know, True Gospel 101 or something like that to get it straight. No, the gospel he preached, to the Galatians, he says, came by a revelation from Jesus. I'm having trouble here. Can you take it through when I come up to it, please? Thank you. Um, Now, Paul, of course, was referring to his dramatic encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. It's described for us in Acts chapter 9. There Jesus confronts Paul. He's on his way. He's aiming to persecute the church, and Jesus confronts him and says, what in the world are you doing? And Paul finds out that he's on the wrong side of the ledger with God. A few days later, through one of the Jerusalem disciples, named Ananias, Jesus declares in Acts 9.15, he says to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel the gospel. God, once more, was coming out of left field. After his conversion in verses 17 to 20, Paul then states what happened next. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see who were the apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, another name for Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. So Paul is a dinky die, if I can put it like that, apostle. It may have been unusual how that happened, but his message, his gospel, like the other apostles, was directly received from Jesus Christ. Now friends, I don't know whether you realise how critical this statement is. Not just for the Galatians, but for the truth of the Gospel and our own Christian faith and hope to this very day. For Paul wrote most of the letters of the New Testament and the Christian good news of acceptance with God based on the free grace of Christ is largely found in his teaching. How do we know it's true? You see, there are many religious books around today. Lots of them. And most of them claim to be some sort of revelation from God. You've got, of course, the Quran with Islam, which is said to be revelations from God given to Mohammed by and large. Hinduism has the Vedas, ancient religious texts said to be not from a man, but revelations given to various sages through intense meditation. And we could go on. Which one is true? When my daughter Steph first went to Afghanistan with Church Missionary Society, CMS. She went for a six-month trial to see how she'd go, whether she could cope with the lifestyle, etc., things like that. And when she came back, she told me that one of the first questions that confronted her as a Christian coming from, let's say, a country of majority Christian heritage was the same question. Who is right? Is the Gospel true? Is Christian faith correct? You see, she was living in a city then of two million Muslims. And you could almost count the Christians on your fingers. Many of those people, in fact the majority of those people, were as devout followers of Islam as she was of Christianity. For Paul, and what Steph of course also concluded, you see the answer depended in the first instance on who Jesus is. Paul says he's not just a human man, but the Son of God. The image of the invisible God, who the very first verse of this letter says was raised from the dead, by God the Father. You see, all the world's religions, at most, I think, have only dead heroes. Only the Christian gospel proclaims a resurrected Lord. And the apostles, Paul included, are the eyewitness testimony to that fact. I love the opening introduction of the Apostle John's first letter, 1 John, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Paul was a true apostle, like Peter, Cephas, like John, and the others who lived with Jesus. And their words and teaching have come down to us, therefore, as the very words of God. The very words of the Son of God. Whom God the Father raised from the dead. That is why in our postmodern world, where the truth seems to be whatever you want it to be, as long as it suits you, that we should always seek to point people to Jesus and to the good news of God's grace that comes from Him. The truth. An authority of Paul's message back then and the truth of the Gospel we see in the pages of the New Testament today rest first of all on the truth about Jesus. That's why, friends, we can do no better with our friends and neighbours, non-Christian friends and neighbours or workmates than to seek to introduce them to Jesus in the pages of the Gospel. However, that's not all Paul does here in his defence. He argues for the truth and authenticity of the gospel he preaches now from his experience. Paul's apostleship and his message was authenticated, secondly, through the life-changing effect of God's grace. What I've called the life-changing effect of Paul's gospel. From verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul reviews the evidence of his conversion as a testimony to the authenticity of his apostleship and message. The evidence that his gospel came from the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was divine and not simply a human invention, was the incredible change it had on his life. He describes it here in two ways. First, when Paul met Jesus, he describes how he effectively went from being a top-notch Jew to gospel preacher to the Gentiles. Verse 13, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to control not to consult any human being. Now I think it's hard for us to understand just how great this change really was. Paul was an educated Jew, he was advancing beyond his years, he was very zealous for God. You know, you couldn't you couldn't fault his motivation. He was zealous, very zealous for God. And he saw Jesus as an imposter and threat to the historic Jewish faith revealed in the Old Testament in God's covenants with Israel. To go from that belief to be a preacher to the Gentiles, to now preach that nothing at all about the law of Moses was at all necessary to belong to God was a shift, friends, of seismic proportions in Paul's life. A bit like a supporter of the Crows transferring to Port. Or vice versa, I suppose. Or a supporter of either one changing to support Collingwood. It simply could not happen unless something real and dramatic had actually taken place. Furthermore, the change manifested itself clearly in Paul's attitude to the church. Paul moved from being a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the faith. Verse 21. Then I went to Cilicia, Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Imagine if you'd been one of the members of the early churches in Judea at the time. You know, you hadn't uh, met Paul But you heard of his reputation. He was out to destroy the church. He persecuted it intensely. And the news began to trickle down that he had dramatically changed and was now actually preaching the faith, the good news about Jesus. The change was genuine. It couldn't be doubted. I once met a man many years ago when I was on a retreat in Sydney who'd spent many years in jail because he'd murdered his wife in a callous and horrible way. But while he was in prison, he'd heard the gospel and was converted. A, A revolution came over his life When I met him at this retreat some years after he'd been released from prison he was so full of joy and enthusiasm of God it was infectious. Could a murderer be truly turned around in such a manner? Indeed he could. And that was Paul's testimony too. And both knew that this change was due to the effect of God's grace from beginning to end. Please note carefully what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach among the Gentiles. You see, Paul makes it clear that God's sovereign choice to commission him as an apostle to the Gentiles began before he was even born. Then, in time and space, he was introduced to God's son and it utterly changed his life by the grace he found in Christ. And that change brought about by the grace is true, friends, for every Christian. And that's because God's grace is intentional. You see, God not only aims to save us, he also aims to change us. To change us over time to be more like his son, who will make us perfect and without sin when he returns. You know there are still those today even in Bible believing churches who say that because God's love and grace is free it has no implications for your life. You can live as you like. Christ died for you. God will always forgive you. I'm here to say nothing could be further from the truth. If your life has not changed you've not received God's grace. If you are no different from the people around you, you simply have not come to know Jesus at all. God's grace is free. You don't have to do anything but accept and trust Jesus for it. But when you do that, the Spirit of God enters your life and changes it forever. And that is why in today's world, friends, your own personal testimony is the most powerful weapon, one of the most powerful weapons you possess in seeking to introduce others to Jesus. And I'm not talking about uh, the nature of your conversion, you know, how dramatic it was, whether you big one, small one, took time, brought up in a Christian family or anything like that. No, I'm talking about what an incredible difference it makes in your life to know God because of the grace of Jesus Christ. To know you are forgiven even when at times you continue to stuff up that you're forgiven because of the death of Christ and the cross and his resurrection to dead. To know you are acceptable to God Just the way you are. Not because you're wealthy or pretty or handsome. Not because of where you live or the job you have or who you know. To know that you have access to God's very person and throne. Anytime. Anywhere through prayer. To know what life is really all about. Because God has told us in his word. To know that the same grace of God has an eternity that is prepared for us. Friends, these things are not just head knowledge. They infiltrate your very being. You can never be the same again. You can never go back to the life you led before you are a Christian. You can never lead the sort of life the world does. One of self-centredness, or where self-centredness reigns. Through God's wonderful grace in Christ, he has made you his. No, your number one aim is simply to follow Christ and to serve him. You know, we live very much in a fallen world, don't we? Mucked up by human sin and rebellion to God. It throws up all sorts of trouble, evil, sadness. And none of us, Christian or non-Christian, is immune from its touch. But I think, At least it's true for me. Coming to know Christ is the greatest thing. That's ever happened to me. And I hope if you class yourself as a believer today, you can say the same. Ask God to give you an an opportunity to share that with someone who needs to know that too. See, the authority of Paul's gospel, the authority of the gospel proclaimed in today's scriptures, rests in the fact that it comes from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But its authentication of its reality in time and space is seen in its life-changing effect on human life. It was true for Paul, and it's just as true for every believer today. And that is the same for you and for me, just as it was for Paul. There is, however, a third element of Paul's defence of his apostleship and hence the truth of his gospel, and that is what I've called the esteem pillar's commendation of his or Paul's gospel. In chapter 2 verse 1 Paul tells us that he visited Jerusalem 14 years later. Now we're not quite sure whether the 14 years means after his conversion or 14 years after the first three years. It doesn't matter all that much. And though there's been much debate over when exactly this was it was probably a little time before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 which you can read about. The esteemed pillars as Paul refers to them in verse 9 of chapter 2 are the Jerusalem apostles like Peter and John or Cephas and John and the other leaders of the Jerusalem church such as James who was uh, the overall leader, the Lord's brother. Paul says at the end of verse 2 that he did this because he wanted to make sure that he had not been running his race in vain. Now I don't think this means that Paul lacked any conviction about the truth of his message and that he needed their approval. And that's what he was worried about. In fact, in verse 6 he says he doesn't care whether they're esteemed or not. Why? Because God shows no favouritism. God treats everybody the same, regardless of how we regard them. Rather, he knew his task of preaching preaching to the Gentiles could not be effectively discharged without the support of the Jerusalem Church. Though Paul had begun the defence by asserting the independence from Jerusalem, his own independence from Jerusalem, that is, he didn't get it from them, when it came to the authority of his gospel, he knew its progress throughout the world depended on the unity of the Church and especially the unification with Jerusalem about the truth of the free grace of Christ. The final authentication of his gospel then was that the esteemed pillars of Jerusalem church agreed. They agreed that he was preaching to the Gentiles what was true. The evidence of this was their treatment of Titus. Titus, we're told was not required to be circumcised. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Whether Paul took Titus with him purposely to test the view of the Jerusalem leaders or he just happened to be with him at the time, we don't know. But some people obviously exerted pressure on Paul for Titus to be circumcised. But Paul resisted. And his resistance was rewarded in three ways. First, we're told here in verse 7 that the Jerusalem leaders added nothing to Paul's message. Nothing at all. As one writer puts it, that clearly means that they did not think Paul's message was an abbreviated one, one designed to make the gospel more attractive to the Gentiles. They did not think that Moses needed to be studied and obeyed in order to be a full member of the church. And they did not think that such boundary markers needed to be imposed like circumcision and food laws. Second, in verse 9 we are told these esteemed pillars Peter, James and John extended both Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now friends, that was much more than a decent Aussie handshake. It was a formal and public demonstration of agreement. Paul's gospel was the same gospel the pillars themselves preached. Third, Consequently, they recognised the same grace of God that had been given to them had also been given to Paul. There was only one gospel of free grace for all. The issue might have been circumcision and certain food laws then, But the temptation to demand something more than faith in Christ to become a Christian and belong to God's people has continued throughout the ages. In my own lifetime I could cite the statement by some back in the 70s and 80s that you needed to speak in tongues, for instance, to be a true Christian or to receive God's Spirit. Or the demand that continues to raise its head every now and then that you have to be baptised to be a Christian. And by baptism, of course, people normally mean baptism by immersion. But just as Paul resisted the pressure to circumcise Titus, so we must also resist any statement that says to become a Christian, you have to do something. You don't have to do anything. Anything more than turn back to God except what he has done for you in Christ through his death and resurrection, nothing else. Yes, when it comes to how we will then, or yet when it comes to how we will then serve and live for God, that indeed will be different for each one of us. We see here at the end of the passage that the grace of Christ brings us into relationship with God, his people. But there will always be different avenues of gospel service. Note verses 8-10. to For God was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, For, for God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, Cephas and John, those esteemed pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When they recognised the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they asked, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. See, Peter, James and John recognised that Paul preached the same gospel, but God had given him a different job. to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. While Peter's job was to take largely the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews. Now that's also going to be true, friends, for you and me. The key question to ask yourself is this. Whatever you are involved in day by day, single, married, kids, job, retired, well off, struggling to get by... Do you you see yourself first and foremost as a servant of Christ in that context? For that is what God's grace has made you. That is its wonder. That is its joy. And that is its hope. One gospel of God's free grace lived out in different avenues of service throughout our lives. You know, when you first read this passage through today, you might think it was just about an historical situation in which Paul found himself. The need to defend his apostleship and thereby the truth of the gospel he preached. But on closer inspection, we see that our lives as God's people today parallel that of the great apostle in at least three ways. First, point people to Jesus, the divine son of God. The truth and assurance of the Christian faith and gospel rest first and foremost with him. Second, Reflect on your own testimony. What God has done in you and continues to do, how he's changed you, how good it is to know to, him, to know him and to pray. And to pray that you might be able to share that with others. And third, wherever God leads you in daily life, aim above all else, to be a servant of Christ, giving glory to him in whatever you do and say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your wondrous grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to this earth and revealed him in human history so that we might know for certain that the gospel, the good news about Jesus that comes from him is absolutely true. We thank you, Lord, that if we're a believer here today that that grace has changed our life forever. And we thank you that whatever we do each day, whichever way you lead us, we do so in the knowledge that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that indeed you might give us opportunities to share uh, the wonder of your grace with others so that others around us might truly Uh, come to know you and have that great uh, change in their lives and wondrous hope for the future. And we ask it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.